1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering. Today on the program, we'll hear from Brent McDougall. He's the author of Prayer Power. We'll also talk with, um, Mira Gable. She's an Axios reporter from uh, Portland on Portland's journey to secure a major league baseball team. I'm going to ask James Glenn to join me for that. He's the baseball guy around here. We'll find out whether or not Portland is likely to get a team this go round. And we'll also uh, talk about the Elroy Haiti ministry asking for prayers for the kidnapped nurse. Who's been a part of that ministry for a number of years, that and more on today's program. Well, it's been more than 24 hours and the responses coming in from The Republicans on the president's uh, former president's indictments are in the editors uh, of one magazine suggested the indictment of the former president by uh, the Biden Justice Department special counsel on four felony charges arising out of his efforts to undo the president's uh, victory in the 22 election is momentous, not just in its potential impact on our politics, but in what it uh, could mean for the rule of law. This is National Review. We have on many occasions condemned Trump's appalling actions in the aftermath of the 2020 election. They were impeachable. He came close to being convicted in a Senate impeachment trial with 57 senators finding him guilty. He has saved only by the Constitution two uh, two thirds majority mandate for conviction and disqualification. Now, through a special counsel it appointed for this precise purpose, the Biden Justice Department is attempting to use the criminal process as a do over for a failed impeachment. In effect, Jack Smith is endeavoring to criminalize protected political speech and flimsy legal theories. When the Supreme Court has repeatedly admonished prosecutors to refrain from creative theories to stretch penal laws to reach misconduct that Congress has not made illegal. In our constitutional system, Congress is trusted with the duty to check egregious executive misconduct. Its failure to convict Trump uh, understandably galls many of his opponents, left, right, and center. This feeling is accentuated by their sense both that Trump is unfit for the presidency and that there is a very real possibility that he could be elected president again. Hence, the pressure on the Justice Department to hold Trump accountable in a way that political systems do not. Uh, But criminal prosecution is an inapt substitute for the congressionally driven political process that the Constitution set up to address gross abuses of power. Public office is a privilege, not a right. That is why a president may be ousted without all the protections of criminal due process for violating the public trust. In contrast, criminal prosecution is uh, designed to address private wrongs, not derelictions of public duty. It endows the um, it endows the accused with enhanced protections because it's uh, at stake are rights, liberty, property, not the privilege of political power. Whether misconduct rises to the level of impeachable offense is indefinite, left to the people's representatives to assess based on what the facts and circumstances say about a public official's fitness for duty. Criminal offenses are the antithesis of that. They must be defined by statute. With sufficient clarity so that the average person knows what is forbidden and a defendant is presumed innocent. A guilty verdict must be supported by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof not only that the person performed the statutorily prohibited acts, but also did so knowing that his conduct was illegal. Here it's not even clear that Smith has alleged anything that the law forbids. The indictments relate to in detail. Trump's deceptions, but that doesn't mean they constitute criminal fraud. As the Supreme Court reaffirmed just a few weeks ago, fraud in federal criminal law is a scheme to swindle victims out of money or tangible property. Mendacious rhetoric in seeking to retain political office is condemnable and again impeachable, but it's not criminal fraud, although that is what uh, Smith has charged. Indeed, assuming a prosecutor could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump hadn't actually convinced himself that the election was stolen from him. Good luck with that. Hyperbole and even worse are protected political speech. As for obstruction, Americans Americans, presidents included, have a right to attempt to influence Congress even based on dubious or imagined evidence. To establish obstruction, Smith must prove that Trump's efforts to at persuasion were corrupt, again, in the sense that he knew his badgering and lobbying had no factual or legal merit. The concept of corruption is meant to reach clearly criminal conduct, such as evidence, manipulation or witness tampering. It has never been understood to reach wrong headed legal theories. To apply it that way, as Smith proposes, would chill not only political speech, but the constitutional right of a defendant to mount a legal defense. Finally, Smith is charging Trump with a civil rights violation on the theory that he sought to counteract the votes of Americans in contested states and based on a post-Civil War statute designed to punish violation, uh, violent intimidation and forcible attacks against blacks attempting to exercise their right to vote. What Trump did, though... A reprehensible bears no relation to what the statute covers. In his press conference announcing the charges, Smith, for good reason, did not dwell on his questionable charges. He instead emphasized the Capitol riot. Anyone witnessing his remarks uh, would have believed that Trump had, in, uh, had incited a forcible attack on the Capitol. Of course, Smith has not charged him with any such thing because he doesn't have the evidence to tie him criminally to the riot. The prosecutor was making a political statement clearly aimed at swaying the jury pool in blue Washington, D.C., where the Justice Department brags daily about having charged more than a thousand rioters. There is a reason Smith does not have a solid statutory crime to rely on. To criminalize the conduct for which he seeks to convict Trump, Congress would have to write sweeping laws that could easily be wielded by one party against another to punish objectionable political conduct. That would undermine both electoral politics and the rule of law. This indictment should not stand. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to look at what's likely to happen next when the Georgine Rice Show returns.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Brent McDougall. Prayer power. We'll also talk with an Axios Portland reporter, uh, Mira Gable. She's going to talk about Portland's journey to secure a major league baseball team. How likely is that? Well, we'll find out when she joins us in the second hour. Well, recent precedents for challenging electoral college certification in Congress have come not from Republican lawmakers, but from Democrats. Over the past 20 years, Democrats have, on three separate occasions, objected to the validity of electoral votes on the floor of Congress. Wednesday, January 6th, will mark the first time Republicans choose, um, uh, well, that they've done it in the past two decades. Um, this was an article written by Virginia Allen. Um, on the uh, January 6th events looking forward, I cannot vote to certify the Electoral College results on January 6th without raising the fact that some states, particularly Pennsylvania, failed to follow their own state election laws. That's a quote from Senator Josh Hawley, who wrote in a statement on the 30th of December about a dozen Republican senators and about 140 GOP House members are expected to challenge electoral slates during Wednesday's joint session of Congress. Um, she wrote at the time. Well, on January 2nd, Senator Cruz released a joint statement with 10 other GOP lawmakers announcing that they intend to vote on the sixth to reject the electors. Well, since the passage of the Electoral Count Act of 1987 that provides a legal avenue for members of Congress to challenge electoral votes under the Constitution, Democratic lawmakers have objected to election outcomes on several occasions, (coughs) excuse me, including 2001, 2005, and as recently as 2017. In 2001, House Democrats challenged the certification of electoral votes for then Texas Governor George W. Bush, a Republican, but the failed because no senator agreed to sign the written objection. Uh, then there was a similar situation in 2017 when then-Vice President Joe Biden oversaw certification of the electoral vote that handed the presidency to Donald Trump. House Democrats challenged the electoral slate, but to no avail because they lacked support in the Senate. It's over, Biden told Representative uh, Jayapal, who objected to the election results during the 2017 Um, The certification challenge in 2005 was the only instance in recent years in which both a senator and a House member signed a formal objection to an electoral slate. Then Representative Stephanie Tubbs Jones, a Democrat from Ohio, and then Senator Barbara Boxer from California, both Democrats together, challenged Bush's victory in Ohio on grounds of, uh, of alleged voter irregularities. And you might recall that. Um, it was uh, said throughout his presidency that he wasn't actually the elected president. So what we witnessed in um, uh, 2020 wasn't unprecedented uh, and there were no um, efforts to criminalize the challenge at that time. Now, what happens with this most recent challenge remains to be seen, but just a bit of Reflection on what's happened in the past. Well, in other news, the International Monetary Fund canceled a talk with a physicist, John Clauser, after he said climate change is not a crisis. The IMF had uh, invited Clauser, the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physics, to deliver a WebEx speech on the 25th of last month. Five days before the event, Clauser was informed his speech had been postponed. Read. Canceled. The lecture has yet to be rescheduled. According to the Educational Climate Organization CO2 uh, Coalition, where Clauser serves on the board, Pablo Moreno, director of the IMF's Independent Evaluation Office, read the flyer for Clauser's lecture and immediately canceled or technically postponed the event. It advertises John Clauser's speech before the lecture um, uh, as canceled. The postponement of the presentation to the IMF concerning climate models and their use is troubling but not surprising. That's a quote from Gregory Wrightstone, the executive director of the CO2 coalition. Any scientific information that differs from the consensus, in quotes, opinion of man-made catastrophic warming continues to be systematically suppressed, Wrightstone said. Well, the Daily Signal contacted Moreno to learn when Clauser's lecture would be rescheduled. The answer, well, the seminar has been postponed to reorganize uh, into a panel discussion. The senior official with the independent evaluation office said we're working to reschedule it after the summer. Hmm. Moreno didn't respond to an inquiry regarding concerns that Clauser's lecture was postponed due to his views on the alleged climate crisis. Had the event not been postponed, Dr. Clauser was prepared to argue that the science on global warming is far from settled and that extreme caution may be warranted when setting economic policy on oversimplified views of the Earth's climate system. Well, at the end of June, Closser delivered a lecture at the Quantum Korea 2023 event in Seoul. During his remarks, he told the audience to beware, adding, if you uh, if you're doing good science, it may lead you into politically incorrect areas. If you're a good scientist, you will follow them. I have uh, several um, I won't have uh, time to discuss, but I can confidently say there's no real climate crisis and that climate change does not cause extreme weather events, end quote. Well, according to the Nobel Prize website, klauser uh, received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2022 for experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell inequalities and pioneering quantum information in science. So the not-so-settled science um, is not, uh, not being heard in these kinds of forums. Well, in other news, the gunman who shot and killed 11 worshippers at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018 was sentenced to death today after being found guilty on 63 criminal counts in June. A federal judge unanimously reached the death sentence verdict for Robert Bowers, now 50 years old, after deliberating for about 10 hours over two days. A judge will officially hand down the sentence at a later date, Bowers faces charges that included obstruction of free exercise of religious beliefs resulting in death, use of a firearm to commit murder during uh, and in relation to a crime of violence and hate crimes resulting in death. The verdict came after a three week trial in which jurors heard testimony from survivors, police officers and others. And during the trial, pro- trial rather, prosecutors allege that Bowers intentionally targeted Jewish people out of hatred. Once he he entered the synagogue, the defendant began to hunt. He moved from room to room, upstairs and downstairs, looking for Jewish worshippers to kill, the prosecutor Su Si Song said. Bowers had posted hateful things about immigrants and Jewish people on the social media site Gab for weeks before he went on the shooting spree. He wrote that Jews are a cancer on the planet. They're evil creatures, pedophiles. The prosecutor went on to point out Bowers made anti-Semitic comics during the shooting and said he wanted to kill uh, members of the community while receiving medical treatment, according to the indictment. Once again, he has been sentenced to death. In other news, President Biden appears positioned to benefit from massive sums and undisclosed donations from the main outside super PAC backing his 2024 candidacy, records indicate. Biden's team promoted the Future Forward PAC as the leading external group to rake in big money to help his candidacy, the New York Times reported in July. At the time, Future Forward told the publication it had raised $50 million this year. Records show that money is presumably in its um, affiliated dark money nonprofit Future Forward USA action. During the first half of the year, the Future Forward PAC reported just 67000 in uh, contributions, according to its recently released mid-year report. The recipients came entirely from a vendor refund and in-kind donations from the nonprofit for staff time and overhead. Future Forward's nonprofit, which hides its donors, has transferred tens of millions to the PAC for electoral activity in recent years. This setup positions Biden's candidacy to receive a boost from anonymous benefactors as the nonprofit sits on a large amount of cash before the election ramps up. And O'Leary Ventures Chairman Kevin o, uh, O'Leary uh, breaks down the downgraded U.S. credit rating and why it should concern all Americans and their wallets. O'Leary says there is no way to sugarcoat that it, um, this is, uh, Uh, At all, it's bad. Basically, when you downgrade the U.S. economy, you're losing a little faith in the U.S. dollar and the U.S. Treasury bill because the default currency of the world defined by every commodity priced by U.S. dollars is um, the good faith of the U.S. government and the whole world. Trust it, most sovereign funds keep the majority of their liquidity in U.S. dollars. That was hurt 24 hours ago because now you start to ask yourself, where is this going? A downgrade from AAA to AA plus, does it go single? If you're a sovereign wealth fund, you start to put that in your mind, and the bottom line for you and me is the cost of capital going up. In other words, what it costs for us to borrow money to fund the government and deficit goes up. No sugarcoating that. Now, how does this actually affect the next 24 months? Think about the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. We're printing billions of dollars. Government claims it has merit. It's important to do this. But at the same time, that's a lot of spending, and that increases the deficit. And that's why Fitch did this. They downgraded it. And I wouldn't say it was the two bills that caused the camels back to be broken, but it was enough for them to say I've seen enough. In America, your car loan just went up from five to somewhere between seven and nine percent. The cost of your loan and your borrowing and your mortgage going up, period. Well, Fitch announced on Tuesday that it has officially downgraded the U.S. long-term foreign currency issuer default rating. To double A plus from AAA, saying the downgrade reflects the expected fiscal deterioration and the nation's heavy debt burden. The ratings agency pointed the America's erosion, rather pointed to America's erosion of governance, rising deficits, and tightening by the Federal Reserve. It also said it expects the U.S. economy to slip into a mild recession in the fourth quarter. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen issued a statement pushing back on Fitch's move, saying the rating agency was using old data and argued conditions have improved under the Biden administration. Investors use credit ratings to assess the risk profile of, com- of companies and governments when they raise financing in the debt capital markets. Well, Generally, the lower a borrower's ratings, the higher its financial costs. The agency also said it expects the U.S. federal deficit to grow from 3.7 percent of GDP in 2022 to 6.3 percent in 2023. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The
1: Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: And we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Brent McDougall, prayer power. We'll also talk with the Axios Portland reporter, Mira Gable. We'll talk about whether or not Portland's journey to secure a major league baseball team is likely to happen and what needs to happen next. Well, following up on the downgrade of the U.S. rating from AAA to AA by Fitch. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen doubled down on her criticism of Fitch's downgrade of the government's long-term credit rating. and remarks earlier today, Fitch cited an erosion of governance that has manifested itself in repeated debt limit standoffs. Fitch also sees federal deficits widening and exacerbating an already large national debt. Looming fiscal challenges posed by rising spending on Social Security and Medicare, in addition to a mild recession projected in late 23 and early 24. Well, Yellen pushed back on the downgrade, arguing that the U.S. economy continues to grow and added, in the longer term, the United States remains the world's largest, most dynamic and most innovative Economy With the strongest financial system in the world. She went on to say Fitch's decision is puzzling in light of the economic strengths we see in the United States. I strongly disagree with Fitch's decision and I believe it is entirely unwarranted. It's flawed assessment is based on outdated data and fails to reflect improvements across a range of indicators, including those related to governance that we've seen over the past two and a half years. Well, despite the gridlock, we have seen both parties come together to pass legislation to resolve the debt limit as well as to make history, historic investment in our infrastructure and American competitiveness. In announcing the downgrade, Fitch spotlighted several aspects of the U.S. that support keeping its credit rating relatively high, including the dollar's uh, status as the world's leading reserve currency. Several structural strengths underpin the United States ratings. These include its large advanced, well-diversified, and high-income economy supported by a dynamic business environment. Critically, the U.S. dollar is the world's preeminent reserve currency, which gives the government extraordinary financing flexibility, Fitch wrote. Well, America's credit rating was downgraded for the first time in 2011 following a debt ceiling standoff that was eventually resolved with a compromise on automatic spending cuts known as sequestration. At the time, Standard & Poor's cut the rating from AAA outstanding to AA plus excellent, although Fitch & Moody's kept the U.S. at AAA at that time. Former Vice President Mike Pence didn't parse words when reacting to former President Trump's indictment by special counsel Jack Smith on Tuesday. And a statement released following President Trump's indictment on charges related to the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol in efforts to overturn the presidential election The former vice president accused Trump of putting himself over the Constitution and said a Trump candidacy would serve as a distraction from President Biden's disastrous record. Today's indictment, the former vice president said, serves as an important reminder. Anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. I will have more to say about the government's uh, case after reviewing the indictment. End quote. Well, the former president is entitled to the presumption of innocence. But with this uh, indictment, his candidacy means more talk about January 6th and more distractions as Americans. His candidacy means less attention paid to Joe Biden's economic policies afflicting millions across the United States and to the pattern of corruption with Hunter. The former vice president went on to say, "Andy declared the country was more important than one man and that the constitution was more important than any one man's career end quote. Well, the suspect charged with attacking former Paul Pelosi appeared before a judge today Ahead of his trial and one Chicago alderman spoke out against a new Illinois law that will allow illegal immigrants to become police officers, arguing the legislation is the latest move to make the state the most progressive in the nation. Chicago alderman Anthony Napolitano warns Illinois House Bill 3751 wasn't enacted in the best interest of Illinois residents. Uh, This is just another statement that Illinois is always trying to be the most progressive state that there is, and nothing's ever done for the Illinois people, Napolitano said in an interview. It's always done for political agenda. This is going to set a standard now that you're going to be looking at non-residents, non-citizens in the United States that are going to be locking up citizens of the United States, he continued. This is a mouthful for Illinois folks to swallow right now. Doesn't seem like it's done in the best intention of people from Illinois or even Uh, It from this country, Governor Pritzker signed a sweeping 130 bills into law on Friday, one of which one of which rather removes the citizenship requirement for aspiring police officers. It will go into effect on the 1st of January, despite facing heavy opposition from GOP lawmakers and prominent police groups. No doubt it will be challenged in the courts. Artificial intelligence will fuel disturbing build a child industry, so says Emma Waters. AI's latest product, uh, Remini, uh, allows users to upload photos of themselves and their partner to generate images of what their future child would look like. There are two sides to this. First, the app lets people envision themselves as parents, potentially encouraging people to pursue rather than delay parenthood. As one woman said, I can actually see myself being pregnant at some point. On the other hand, new technologies introduced a host of temptations and abuses. As reproductive technology advances, doctors could turn AI-generated images of children into reality. This raises the critical question, what is the purpose of having a child and being a parent? Well, the first national See You at the Library book reading event is taking place this Saturday, August 5th. It's already experiencing pushback and dissent, inspired by actor-writer Kirk Cameron, who has uh, spoken at numerous public libraries across the country for the past year, sharing books and stories that are faith-filled, family-focused, and firmly patriotic. Americans at 260 libraries across 44 states now have booked rooms at public libraries to conduct readings themselves on Saturday, said Cameron. Conservatives and Christians have complained that they don't have a seat at the cultural table in America as of late. Well, he added, we have a seat now parents, grandparents, neighbors, pastors, community leaders, and others have booked spaces for this Saturday's library event on August the 5th. Publisher Brave Books says, that's him, a list of senators and other elected officials are supporting the activity as well as governors and mayors and commissioners, the publisher wrote. Well, Cameron and Brave Books have called on all families who love God and love America to gather at their local public library to pray, sing, and read Brave Books and other books of virtue, the publisher's Website notes. Some of the people, however, who have booked time at libraries are already experiencing protest and pushback. A variety of groups and individuals are issuing calls to action on social media, vowing to show up and promote a diverse and entirely different agenda. There are threats of interruptions by drag queen performers and those representing LGBTQI points of view and other alternative beliefs. While the UK government plans to issue over 100 licenses for oil and gas extraction... Despite objections from environmental activists there, I think this is a hugely beneficial move for the UK and will significantly strengthen Britain's energy security, and it will create a lot of jobs. Niall Gardner, director of the Heritage Foundation's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, uh, said in an interview, it's probably the best thing Rishi Sunak has done as prime minister. And this, of course, has resulted in howls of outrage from the environmental lobby who are actively working to undermine British competitiveness as part of a woke ideological agenda. The comments come after the UK government announced on Monday a plan to boost domestic energy production by issuing hundreds of new South Sea oil and gas licenses which it claimed in a re- release will make Britain more energy independent. High school boys are trending more conservative than in previous years while girls of the same age are now moving overwhelmingly in the opposite direction. That's according to a study by the University of Michigan. Twelfth grade boys are nearly twice as likely to call themselves conservative versus liberal With the gap steadily growing in recent years, girls, however, identify themselves as liberal at a a rate of about 30 percent, up sharply from 2015. Psychotherapist Kirsting explained that the numbers go beyond politics and are a reflection of the way the left has talked about men in recent years. We're creating this idea that if you're a male, there's something wrong with you and something wrong with that, that you're bad. Uh, That uh, you have politicians saying the number one problem in America is white men. So young 12th grade boys are seeing through this. The numbers represent a shift from previous generations when young men and women leaned left in similar numbers. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. Also coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with an Axios reporter on whether or not Portland is likely to secure a major league baseball team. And we'll hear from Brent McDougall, who is the author of Prayer Power. We'll be back. You're listening to the
1: Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Hunter Biden told business partner Devin Archer that the Chinese tycoon who helped them secure a multi million dollar venture in the communist state loved him for his last name and for always traveling with handsome, godlike Aryan men. That's a direct quote. In the 2011 email thread, Hunter bragged to Archer about his relationship with Che Fong, a Chinese business tycoon, who they referred to as the super chairman. The emails show that Fang helped Hunter's firm, Rosemont Seneca Partners, and James Bulger's firm, Thornton Group LLC, secure their partnership with uh, Jonathan Lee's firm, um, Bohai Capital, in order to later launch Bohai Harvest RST, which is controlled by the Bank of China Limited. Well, Jonathan Turley uh, points out that Hunter Biden uh, on Hunter Biden. I don't believe in lottery tickets anymore, but I do believe in the super chairman. The super is Che Feng, who is under investigation for corruption. Hunter was right. Lottery tickets are long shot gambles. Influence peddling is a sure thing. And a grand jury has indicted former President Donald Trump for multiple alleged crimes stemming from his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. There are dissenters and those who uh support that move, we'll see what happens next. The blueprint for community safety released by the city's gun violence task force, we're talking about the NYPD will pour almost 500 million dollars into housing, employment and mental health programs without a cent toward putting new police officers on the street. The mayor said boosts for social programs will help to stop the violence before it happens on our streets. Uh, the plan comes as the city's police department is bleeding officers at record rates with more officers leaving in January and February than any year's first two months since a contract dispute in 2007. The mass exodus in those two months was one hundred and seventeen percent jump from the two years prior. Dylan Mulvaney will charge forty thousand dollars per visit to college campuses to give speeches to students, nearly doubling his fee from the year ago, months after the uh, a uh, partnership with Bud Light um, Billions in the now disastrous marketing partnership, the trans influencer 26 announced um, that he was open to hire and wrote on Instagram, university and college friends. I am booking speaking opportunities for the upcoming 2324 school year and would love to come visit $40,000 a pop. And by the way, there are already some engagements that are scheduled. A parental group released a report showing China sinking $17 million into U.S. public schools. A group called Parents Defending Education has released a scathing report called Little Red Classroom, China's Infiltration of American K-12 Schools, which details how China is funding various schools in the U.S., many of them near military bases. The report claims China has funneled seventeen million nine hundred sixty-seven thousand five hundred sixty-five dollars to 135 schools located in 34 states and Washington, D.C. from the year 2009 to 2023. The report outlines how the money comes through Confucius Institutes and its elementary through high school programming called Confucius Classrooms. The Biden administration will begin enforcing a nationwide ban on various types of popular light bulbs, That started yesterday as part of its aggressive energy efficiency agenda. In April of 22, months after first proposing the rulemaking, the Department of Energy finalized regulations prohibiting certain light bulbs over their low energy efficiency levels. According to the Department of uh, Energy announcement, the regulations are projected to save consumers an estimated $3 billion per year on utility bills and cut carbon emissions by 222 million metric tons over the next three decades. A federal grand jury indicted former, well, we already went over that a couple of times. An Ashley Biden recording confirms that the infamous diary is, in fact, hers. The FBI is being forced to turn over documents on targeting Catholics and parents. And Governor DeSantis invited Vice President Kamala Harris to Florida to settle the so-called benefits of slavery drama. Harris hit back the vice president as DeSantis invitation at the invitation, saying that she will not debate an undeniable fact. Meanwhile, Justice Alito speaks harsh truths about Supreme Court ethics legislation and Florida University fired professor over dubious race bias studies. The tourism body appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis to oversee Disney World and its properties announced on Tuesday that it will discontinue all diversity, equity and inclusion programs, DEI, including related roles. Race based contracting and a DEI committee will be eliminated. The Central Florida Tourism oversight district confirmed in a statement because these initiatives and i quote discriminated against americans based on gender and race costing taxpayers millions of dollars end quote well, the announcement follows an internal investigation into the district's policies oklahoma is banning males from women's locker rooms and bathrooms and backlash has begun against the popular british coffee brand costa After consumers spotted the company using a graphic of a transgender man bearing scars from a top surgery. The hashtag Boycott Costa Coffee began trending on Monday and Tuesday with many people attacking the company for appearing to glorify the mutilation of girls. And Bud Light distributors no longer expect sales to recover from the Dylan Mulvaney disasters. But you can have Dylan come to your university for $40,000. New York City Mayor Adams unveiled a $500 million blueprint to fight gun violence with no plans to hire more officers. And confidence in the U.S. military is at its lowest point in 25 years. Well, on this day in history, 1876, while Bill Hickok is shot and killed while playing poker at a saloon in Deadwood, Dakota, territory by Jack McCall. McCall would be hanged. 19, uh, 1921, rather, a jury in Chicago acquits several former members of the Chicago White Sox baseball team and two others of conspiring to defraud the public in the notorious Black Sox scandal linked to the 1919 World Series. 1923, Warren G. Harding, the 29th President of the United States, dies while in office of a heart attack in San Francisco. Vice President Calvin Coolidge becomes President. 1939, Albert Einstein signs a letter to Franklin, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt urging the creation of an atomic weapons research program. 1939, President Roosevelt signs the Hatch Act, which prohibits civil service employees from taking an active part in political campaigns. 1974, former White House counsel John W. Dean III is sentenced to one to four years in prison for obstruction of justice in the Watergate cover-up. Dean would serve up to four months. 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait, seizing control of the oil-rich emirate. The Iraqis were later driven out by a U.S.-led coalition in Operation Desert Storm. 2000, Republicans nominate Texas Governor George W. Bush to lead their 2000 presidential ticket at the party's convention in Philadelphia and ratify former defense secretary Dick Cheney as his running mate. 2018, Pope Francis changes Roman Catholic Church teaching on capital punishment, decreeing that the death penalty is inadmissible under all circumstances. Also in 2018, Apple becomes the world's first publicly traded company to be valued at $1. Trillion dollars. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, President Trump decides to withdraw the U.S. from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty, the historic arms control treaty signed by President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, coming up in the uh, second hour after news and traffic here at the top of the hour, a conversation I had with Brent McDougall, author of Prayer Power learning to pray like George Mueller. We'll also talk with Axios uh, Portland reporter Mira uh, Gable on uh, Portland's journey to secure a major league baseball team. We'll respond to Elroy Haiti, a ministry in the country, asking for prayers for the kidnapped nurse and her daughter that are still um, uh, lost. And Pope Francis laments secularism, indifference, and urges a recommitment to Jesus. That's one thing we can all agree on. Uh, his uh, youth, uh, youth day taking place um, in Portugal for these next few days. All of that coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice
1: Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the new book, Prayer Power 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller, Author and pastor Brent Patrick McDougall. He invites the reader to take a 40 day journey to do something very specific pray. We need to learn a particular and persistent kind of prayer, he writes. He wrote Prayer Power after a Putting into practice the prayer method of 19th century pastor George Mueller, one of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Over a lifetime of ministry, he launched multiple orphanages that cared for more than 10,000 children, but not once did he ever ask for donations. Instead... He prayed as each need arose. Well, every chapter in the book features a teaching from Scripture and a story from the life of Mueller. A, uh, as uh, Dr. Brent uh, leads the reader through each day's reflection, he offers instructions on how to pray on a deeper level. Uh, prayer power, everyday people in the, in the book, uh, people of faith, can learn how to pray with the faith of George Mueller, expecting answers because our God is good, he's waiting to meet, uh, and our reward and to reward those, rather, who seek him. Well, Dr. Brent Patrick McDougall is the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Knoxville, Tennessee. Each Sunday, he speaks to about 3,000 people through in-person television and online worship. He received his B.A. in religion and political science from Emory University and a Master of Divinity from Beeson Divinity School in Samford University. He also holds a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Alabama, a cross-discipline study of politics and religion. Well, he is the author of The River of the Soul and Faith, Hope and Politics. He's written numerous guest blogs, posts and articles, including America's Spiritual Pandemic for Christianity Today. A native of Alabama, he has a heart for bringing people together, cultivating atmospheres of prayer and encouraging devotion among church members, as well as throughout the community at large. We are just so delighted to have you with us. Uh, Dr. McDougall, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me today.
2: You begin in the introduction of your book, Prayer Power. You write, your greatest resource is not money, intellect, or popularity, or pedigree. Your greatest asset is not represented on your resume or in the roll call of your accomplishments. While all these are good, they're secondary to the central sacred resource available to you. You, of course, are referring to prayer. Why do we so grossly underestimate the resource we have at our hands, the invitation that we have from God himself to come before his throne of grace um, to meet with him.
3: It's so true that oftentimes we don't experience power in prayer. I've met people over the course of many years of ministry who say they just feel like they can't experience any breakthrough. They wonder if prayer is just for the super saints. They don't understand the teachings of the Bible about prayer. And because uh, just in that futility, they don't exercise their faith through prayer. They don't experience power. But I really wanted people to know that these promises that are present all throughout Scripture, these miraculous promises about what God can do through the power of prayer, are true not just for a few people, but for all believers who can learn how to pray. You know, the disciples, they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And he did. Mm -hmm. We need to learn how to pray. And uh, as we learn how to pray, we too can experience that power through prayer.
2: Well, this may seem like a simplistic question, but I think it's one that many believers still ponder. What is the purpose of our prayer? Scripture says he knows what we need before we ask. And many of us conclude, well, if he already knows, what would be the point? What is the purpose uh, in prayer and God's invitation?
3: The primary purpose is not asking for what we need, although that is certainly something that is available to us. Uh, The purpose of prayer, I believe, is found in scriptures such as uh, Psalm 63, where David talks about this earnest, beautiful, passionate prayer just to be in the presence of God. Mm. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. He cries out to the living God, and he says... God, I just want to be with you. I want to be where you are, and I want you to be in me. And it's from that place of passion, I believe, that then we are able to ask for the things that we need. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's he's teaching us about his presence and about his kingdom, and that's the place to start. It's not so much just a litany of what we would ask for, but instead to learn to pray in such a way that we really are experiencing communion, a daily communion with our Heavenly Father. If we can't learn to pray like that, it's unlikely that we're really going to learn a deep dependence Mm -hmm. and a trust such that we will be able to ask rightly for the things that we need.
2: I love the, the use of the word communion. It's not a one way street where I simply express what's on my heart, walk away and, and engage in other activities. But we are in relationship. We're in fellowship with God and uh, he speaks to us and we bear our hearts to him as well. Uh, talk a little bit about George Mueller. You uh, mentioned in the subtitle 40 days of learning to pray like George Mueller. Now, this is a, a 19th century pastor that many of our listeners may be unfamiliar with.
3: Yes. Well, I learned about George Mueller by hearing these stories about answers to prayer. And Mueller was a pastor in the 19th century who mostly worked in Bristol, England. But his work was not only in the walls of the church as a pastor. He was out in the community and especially helping to care for orphans who were on the street. In fact, over the course of his ministry, Mueller opened four orphanages that allowed him to care for 10,000 children that were uh, destitute so he could provide for them food, shelter, uh, education, and also spiritual nourishment. So Mueller was known as having a heart for children, you know, and that's what the Bible says, you know, God is a father to the fatherless. He, he loves the little ones. He looks after the ones who have no father, and then he calls people to be fathers to those uh, who don't have a father. So that's what Mueller did. He was known for his care for orphans, but he was mostly known to be a person of great prayer. In fact, Mueller said that over the course of his lifetime, he experienced 50,000 answers to prayer. He never asked for a dime for the orphanages. Uh, He never um, asked for a donation from anyone regarding the buildings. If he had Um, if he had been in today's work, he would have raised about $170 million over the course of his ministry, and it all happened through prayer. He just asked the Lord for what he needed. Well, as I was learning about his life, I remember telling a story once about a time in which he was caring for the orphans, and they had no bread and no milk for breakfast. They were needing to get to their classes for school, and Unfortunately, they were going to have to go hungry. And so he called the children together. He called all the adults, and he said, let's all bow. And they prayed a prayer of thanks for what God was about to provide. Even though there was nothing on the table, they said, thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do. And it wasn't long before there was a knock at the door. The milk truck had broken down outside the orphanages, and the milk was going to spoil. Could they have use of it to give to the orphans so they had milk for the day? And then the baker sent word that he had overbaked for the day and had Mm -hmm. extra bread. Could he send it over to the orphanage to feed the children? Mueller saw so many things like that happen, and I believe his ability to give thanks before the prayer was answered was part of his secret. So I heard all these stories about his life, and I thought, you know, I'm tired of telling George Mueller stories. I want (laughs) to live George Mueller (laughs) stories. I want to experience power in prayer for myself, and so that was really a a beginning of a journey where I started to study his life and really the biblical principles that he lived by, and I began to experience breakthrough. I saw such amazing things happen immediately as I put these things into practice. And so I wrote this book because I wanted the people to experience that very same power in prayer.
2: Mm. We're going to take a break in a moment, but I do want to give you an opportunity to dispel what may be a misunderstanding about the nature of prayer. Uh, You're a a pastor, uh, Pastor Mueller. He was a pastor. Uh, There are certain people for whom prayers Uh, are offered and answered, while the rest of us uh, aren't in the same position where we're heard and uh, receive a response in the same way that you do. I'm certain that there are some of our listeners who imagine they're in a separate category and that there is no principle uh, in Scripture that would apply to their prayers being answered in such extraordinary ways.
3: Yes. Well, as we uh, consider the teachings of Scripture, I think it's important to remember that Not every um, thing that is there is only applicable to pastors. So, for instance, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he was talking to them long before any of them became pastors or leaders in, in the church. And he taught them, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He was giving them these promises, not just for a few, but for everybody. And if Jesus is to, to be believed, that we can expect that he's going to swing by the door when we go before him. Uh, George Mueller said, every believer, when they draw near to God, should have full confidence that God is listening and willing to answer prayer. And our difficulty seems to be that these promises are just too great. We think, well, that can't be what God means. We stagger at the promises through our unbelief, and therefore, Mueller says, we fail to secure the treasure that was purchased for us by Christ. And what that means is that all of us have access to the throne of God. As amazing as that may seem, Mm -hmm. we all have access to the one father. We can all go directly to God and all the promises of scripture are for everyone who comes by faith. So I just want to encourage those who are listening today. These promises are for you. You can experience great breakthrough in prayer and don't let unbelief get in the way of your relationship with God. Go to him and see what God can do as you pray.
2: Amen. We're going to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Brent Patrick McDougal. He is the author of Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. We'll be back in just a few moments. Once again, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Doctor Brent Patrick McDougall, he's senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Knoxville, Tennessee, and we're talking about his book, Prayer Power: Forty Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. We were talking just before the break about this uh, this notion that we may misunderstand that God has extended this invitation to all of us. Another misunderstanding, and then we'll get to the the book. uh, Another misunderstanding might be that I can pray for virtually anything and expect that God will respond because of the promises that he has made. Are there parameters? Um, Are we to pray according to God's will or according to my preference?
3: Such a great question. It's certainly important that We seek to pray in God's will and not to be asking in such a way that is not befitting what God wants for our lives. We can't expect God to give us something that's not good for us. And so one of the important principles that George Mueller put into practice was to seek to understand God's will and to pray accordingly. And he had a very specific way of going about that. So... One of the biggest things I learned from George Mueller's life is that the way that you live by faith impacts the power that you experience in prayer. So what happens is a lot of people are just going about their business. They're not really living for the will of God. They're not really changing their behavior. They're not really seeking God in all things. And then they go to God and they wonder, why am I not experiencing more answers to prayer? We've got to be living in such a way that is consistent with the promises that are given to us uh, about prayer.
2: Amen. Now, the book is divided into six sections. Uh, Talk about the importance of these six topics and the order that they're in as uh, a reader goes through the 40 days to learn to pray, uh, as did uh, George Mueller.
3: Yes. So the book is broken down into six sections. Uh, There are 40 chapters that are part of all those Six sections, and so it's a 40-day kind of brief devotional each day that has a biblical principle, a story from George Mueller's life, typically an, an anecdote from my own life or something else, and then sort of a takeaway point, a uh, prayer principle is what I call it. So as people move through uh, those 40 days of devotion, they'll they'll experience sort of six movements or six principles that George Mueller taught about how to live a life. That experiences power in prayer the first one is to abide in christ that comes from john chapter 15 in which he talks about abide in me and i will abide in you so every day seeking to become happy in the lord is our first principle you know getting our hearts right just glad to be living for god today to abide in him and to day by day hour by hour live in the presence of god listening and looking to God for everything that you need. The second principle is complete dependence on God. So this is recognizing that you need God for your physical troubles, your financial troubles, your career challenges, your relationship issues. It's really a posture bringing everything before the Lord in prayer. There's the foundation of abiding, but then there's the way that in all things you you bring before your heavenly father your needs and concerns. Now, the third principle is to forsake sin. This is really important because oftentimes we have sin in our lives that blocks the way in which we experience the presence of God. And we might not think that there's a connection between forsaking sin and prayer, but Jesus said, if there's anything in your life that's causing you to sin, cut it out immediately. Don't abide it. Don't rationalize it. Don't put it off for another day. Get rid of it because it gets in the way of the way that you're experiencing God. The fourth principle is to exercise your faith. Now, this means that you are stepping in faith, even if you don't see steps two, three, and four, you're taking that first step. You're listening to the Holy Spirit. You're willing to to move by faith and to trust that God is going to lead you with each new step. You're not waiting on God to put it all together or show you every single thing, but instead you're moving by faith. That's the fourth principle. The fifth principle is to learn to pray in the will of God. And so that means seeking the Lord through scripture and in the power of the spirit, emptying yourself of your own will, saying, not my will, God, but what you want. Mueller said that's 90 percent of the problem is that we bring an agenda into our Mm -hmm. prayers rather than leaving the outcomes to the Lord. And then finally, sixth, it's to persevere in prayer. We give up way too soon. We don't pray through problems or the biggest things that we want to see in life. But Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. And actually, a better way to translate those phrases are keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. He taught us that we should always pray and never give up. So persevere in prayer and wait for the Lord to work out what you want to see happen.
2: What a what a wonderful 40 days to focus on prayer and to learn how to get um, everything that God intends for us to learn about prayer, to engage in prayer, and to see him uh, respond in a way that demonstrates his faithfulness. What's needed to start this method of prayer? Where do we begin?
3: Sure. Well, certainly you need uh, a regular pattern of Bible reading and also the practice of prayer. So I'm always surprised by how few people, even people in churches, you know, that are in worship every week, but they don't have a regular way of of meeting with God. So you need a a way of reading the Bible and, and really reading the Bible in and of itself. Don't rely on a devotional. You know, go to God's Word. That's where the power is. So um, Jesus said to find a place, uh, a a secret sort of place that's just for you. Uh, He doesn't mean like a place that no one else knows about, but a quiet place that's away from everyone else and shut the door. And God, who is in secret, will meet you and reward you in secret. So you need a plan, you need a place, and then you just need um, a passion, you know, You need to be willing to be taught, willing to linger in the presence of God. Really, you could move through these 40 days of devotion and not necessarily cultivate any greater passion than what you already have, but instead to ask the Lord, God, would you give me greater passion for you? Would you help me to long to be in your presence? Would you reveal yourself to me as I meet with you? Because, Lord, I just want to know you and I want to be with you. That's what I think required to really be transformed in prayer.
2: I appreciate you reminding us that even the desire to please him, the power to please him comes from him. So we can approach uh, an effort to um, understand and practice prayer uh, in a more biblical way by asking him to give us that desire to help us along the way. So we don't have to start out as passionate as we hope we will be when we've uh, gone through the 40 days. But that's a a great thing to be reminded of. If I'm not there yet, God will bring me along. Now, for those who who struggle with the time, uh, and I I suppose that's a struggle we have in so many ways, but the time to prayer uh, to pray. uh, Can we take a few minutes here, a few minutes there? What's the best approach? And what do you say to those who struggle with just finding sufficient time?
3: To those that would say they don't have enough time to pray or to read the Bible, I would say that you have 24 hours in the day, just like every other human being on the planet has ever had. God has given you enough time to do what God wants you to do, to fulfill God's purpose. God has given you all the time that you need. And if you give your time to God, God will give you sufficient time to accomplish everything else. You know, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom. I believe this means seek first in the morning. Um, When I wake up, I try to wake up in a posture of prayer and then to read the Bible as the first words that hit my mind. Because I know when things get busy, you know, all these other worries and information start to rush in. And so I want that first seeking of Him to be setting the pace for the day. I think it's a good pattern. Not everyone is is a morning person. Maybe other people might say it's at night, but I do believe that seeking Him first and uh, letting that be the standard for how the rest of the day goes is so important. You know, I, I heard one pastor say, "If I if I miss a, a morning of prayer, then uh, I notice it. If I if I miss a week of prayer, my wife notices. <laughs> if, I, if I miss." <laughs> A month of prayer. My church notices it. You know, <laughs> we've got to be seeking him. And so I would say don't don't kick yourself if you if you haven't prayed as much as you would like to or that God wants you to. Just begin. Ask the Lord to help you to increase from a few minutes to five minutes or from five minutes to ten minutes. And what I've experienced is that the more that you taste the presence of the Lord, the more you see how good it is. And you'll just want more of it. God can change your heart little by little. Yes,
2: yes. Once again, the book is titled Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. And can you tell us, where can our listeners find a copy? The book is published by Whitaker House. Where can we find it?
3: Listeners can go on Amazon and search for Prayer Power and then my name, Brent McDougall. And people are able to, to purchase it there. They can also go to Whitaker House amazing publisher, and uh, can purchase it there online as well. There are um, lots of, uh, I think, opportunities for churches to not only to to see this happen among individuals, but also to see a whole church to kind of move through this as a 40-day journey. It can really be transformative. And so um, I would just encourage people to... Um, to give it a try. And I love to hear from people that are reading this book. It has been such a joy to hear how people are being transformed in prayer, just as I've been transformed. It gives me such great hope for the church in America. Yes, so I would love to hear from people.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. It's been a joy. God bless.
2: Bye-bye. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, my guest, Dr. Brent Patrick McDougal, and his book, prayer power you're listening
1: to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: hey good afternoon and welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show i've asked james blend to join me for this portion of the program because we are going to talk about portland's quest to nab a major league baseball team now this has been going on for a while
4: yeah it's it's something that we've uh, definitely seen over the last few years and this is Kind of the second round of it, because about 20 years ago, we had the uh, same possibilities when they were looking for a new home for the Montreal Expos that eventually wound up in Washington, D.C.
2: Well, some folks are speculating that uh, this time, Portland is in a close, it's closer to reality. I'll put it that way. Yeah. That Portland could, in fact, nab a team. And here to talk with us about that is Mira Gable. She is a reporter for Axios Portland and has some insight into this whole thing. Thanks for joining us, Mira. Thank you for having me. Okay, we've been waiting a long time to find out whether or not Portland is seriously in the running for the possibility of a team. Your thoughts just in general?
5: I mean, it's hard to say. There are so many factors Mm -hmm. that go into this that the mayor and the city don't control and not even the MLB can control. But experts, what we've been hearing is a bunch of industry chatter
2: and experts expect that, you know, it should be coming soon. They're feeling very helpful. Now this all um, hinges from the uh, major league baseball commissioner saying that the organization is planning to expand from 30 teams to 32 in the near future. And Portland is considered for one of those two uh, new slots.
5: Yeah. Portland is one of the larger metropolitan areas that doesn't have a baseball team. And like um, you were saying earlier in the program, like this has been something Portland has been wanting for a really long time. And I think the city is gearing up to make it a reality, hopefully.
2: Now, you mentioned that this isn't a decision that the city alone can make, nor uh, Major League Baseball. Um, what are the factors that go into determining whether or not a metropolitan city like the city of Portland uh, is going to get a team or is being considered for a team?
5: I think the one that comes to mind immediately is real estate, right? Like, we don't have a baseball t- stadium that can harness. a a professional team. So what the Portland Diamond Project, which is the organization that's been leading the charge to bring an MLB team to Portland has been doing is they're trying to identify certain locations where a stadium could go. And they're honing in on Lloyd Center, the mall in Northeast Portland as a potential stadium site. And the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler is backing them up on that saying that it could be a central location for um, a new urban renewal district in the area, and it could be kind of like a hot spot for sports and entertainment. Um, so right now, what they're doing is they're trying to work with Lloyd Center owners to kind of secure that location. But they also have a backup. So the backup location is the Red Tail Golf Course in Beaverton, and the Portland Diamond Project already offered the city, which owns the property. $30 million in case talks with Lloyd Center fall through.
4: One of the things that uh, has come up over the past couple of years in the building of this project is, of course, Portland has gotten a good amount of bad PR, especially during the pandemic. Uh, do, you, do we see any after effects from some of the uh, problems that Portland faced in, in MLB's decision making?
5: I'm not entirely sure um, that's hard to say, but Portland has been on a stint to kind of rebuild its reputation in the national eye, and I think this is one of the things that they are really gearing toward as well as revitalizing downtown. Um, if we can bring an MLB team to Portland, not only will we make you know what not only will we kind of bolster economic activity but it will also kind of change. Portland's reputation um, and provide, you know, the chance to build thousands of new housing units, which will hopefully go toward um, addressing some of the larger issues that Portland is facing.
2: Well, I know Axios uh, did a survey in which you asked local residents uh, whether or not they were excited about the prospect of having a team, if the Lloyd Center area was favorable to them, and there was some concern about um, uh, housing Uh, being displaced or uh, funding being diverted to the new stadium. What did you all discover in this survey of Portland residents? It was a relatively small sampling, but it does give us a bit of a snapshot.
5: Yeah, so over 186 respondents um, took the survey, but we only had the survey up for about a a week. And a little over three quarters of the people said that they would prefer a stadium to be built at Lloyd Center over the red tail golf course in Beaverton and a majority of readers over 70, a little bit over 70% said that they're interested in an MLB team coming to Portland. Some have expressed that they would be enthusiastic to be season ticket holders while others, like you mentioned are kind of saying like, Hey, we have other problems that Portland needs to address. We don't need a baseball stadium right now. But supporters have been saying that a baseball stadium could kind of usher in solutions for the problems that Portland is facing.
2: Now, one of my questions, I live in the, the Lloyd Center area. Um, I'm trying to envision how a stadium there, where it would be located and where <laughs> the parking might be. We've already got the Rose Quarter. We've got the old Coliseum. Uh, are they discussing those kinds of logistics in this early stage or is just a matter of we're going to do it here or not and we'll figure out the details?
5: So it is a very early stage. I don't think that they've gotten to parking quite yet, but one of the things that excites experts and people who are in discussions with um, Lloyd Center, what excites them about the location is that it's a transportation hub mm-hmm. and it would really encourage people to walk or bike or take public transit to the stadium. Um, but it's, it's going to encompass all of Lloyd Center and including Holiday Park and surrounding areas um but it would need to be all, you know, torn down and hashed out and I think we're years away from seeing that happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. What is the timeline? Are we are we talking about a decision made in the near term but a decade before we actually see uh, something on the ground? What do you have any idea what their timeline is?
5: Yeah, so there's no um timeline right now. The Portland Diamond Project said that if they can get a contract um, with a realist, like for a location by the end of the year, that could be Portland's best bet to have an, to make sure that an MLB team would come to the area. So it's kind of the case of like field of dreams. Like if we build it, will they come? Mm -hmm. I don't know.
4: (laughs) One of the things that I wonder about is that, uh, of course, with the Expos Nationals um, 20 years ago, I think there was a feeling from a lot of baseball fans that maybe, MLB kind of used Portland as leverage to get a better deal in D.C. Is there any is there any worry on the Portland Diamond Project or the the government's um, part about potentially being used again?
5: I mean, potentially, it's hard to see because right now the MLB is facing its own problems Mm -hmm. with its regional revenue um, allocation, and they need to sort out their kind of internal issues before they even think about expanding the league. So it could just be like a really big tease for Portland in the end. It's just we don't have enough evidence to see yet.
2: Well, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Lloyd Center is sort of the place where retailers go to die these days, and it (laughs) definitely needs something in that area, whether or not it's an MLB uh, stadium and the housing that's likely to spring up around that and Um, the the businesses that would would support that. It'll be interesting uh, to see your prediction in the near term. As you pointed out, the City of Portland and the the MLB team aren't going to be making uh, that decision on their own. There are other factors, regional revenue structure and so on. Uh, Your thoughts on what we should look for next?
5: I think we should look for next is an official partnership between the City of Portland and the Portland Diamond Project, There have been email records that show that these two are in active communication, but there hasn't been a official partnership set forward yet. And I think if we see that official partnership, we'll know
2: that something is coming in the future. So that's what I'm looking out for. All right. Well, we'll keep our our eyes and ears open. Totally. Well, thank you. Well, Mira, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Mara uh, Gable is with Axios. She's a reporter uh, from the Portland area talking about Portland's journey to secure a major league baseball team. I'm not sure, James, is this going to happen in my lifetime?
4: I, I question it. I mean, certainly I think that we've seen that baseball can thrive in the area. The, the After the Portland Beavers left a couple of years ago, now, mind you, A lot more people go down there for soccer games than they used to for Portland Beaver games. But, uh, you know, the Hillsborough hops out in Hillsborough have been extremely successful to the point of they've outgrown their stadium and they're getting a new stadium in the next couple of years that hold more people. So certainly minor league baseball, which is now run by major league baseball, um, it has a has a thriving future here. in The Portland Metro. Now, whether or not major league baseball comes here, I don't think it comes this round. Personally, I think we're probably 20 to 25 years away.
2: So that would be a no then.
4: Well, I hope you're still here in that time period. <laughs> we'll
1: see. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Christian Education Ministry, L. Roy Haiti, uh, from which New Hampshire nurse Alex. Doran Sainville and her daughter were kidnapped. as She did work for the ministry following the footsteps of Jesus has called for more prayers for her safe return as gang members have reportedly demanded a ransom of a million dollars. Please continue to pray with us for the protection and freedom of Alex and her daughter. As our hearts break for this situation, we also continue to pray for the country and people of Haiti and for freedom from the suffering they endure daily. The ministry said in a statement uh, on Monday, well, the ministry said the New Hampshire mother who married um, Elroy Haiti founder Sandro Dorisaneville in 2021 after she began her role as school nurse with the organization in 2020 is a committed Christian who's been traveling to Haiti since 2010. She first visited Haiti soon after the 2010 earthquake while she was in college. She fell in love with the people. She spent her breaks and summers. Uh, Taking back to the, uh, uh, taking trips back to the country. And once she uh, started working as a nurse, she would save money and then self fund all of her trips there, going as often as she could, according to L. Roy Haiti. Well, she had uh, lived in Haiti for multiple years, showing love and care in a variety of ways before coming on staff. Uh, but has had a, a heart for the hurting since she was a child. She seeks people out to show them love and compassion, and no one is excluded from receiving her kindness, the ministry explained, before noting that she had been following in the footsteps of Jesus with her work on the Caribbean island. Alex lives a life following in the footsteps of Jesus as she obeys the biblical demand found in Mark twelve thirty to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Elroy Haiti reported, well, the ministry further vowed that they will not stop praying until the nurse and her daughter are released. We've committed this situation to God knowing that he is good. So until Alex and her daughter are safely returned to us, we will do as it says in Psalm twenty-seven fourteen: wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord, the ministry went on to say. Well, her husband was... Um, Alex Dorsainville was kidnapped from El Roy Haiti's campus uh, near the country's capital, Port-au-Prince, on the 27th of uh, last month. That same day, the State Department issued a travel advisory asking Americans not to travel to Haiti, ordering all U.S. citizens and non-emergency government employees to leave as soon as possible. Witnesses told the Associated Press that the New Hampshire nurse was busy caring for patients in the small brick clinic, when armed men ambushed the site and took she and her daughter. Uh, a patient who was waiting for a checkup told the news service that one man brandished his gun and told her to relax. When I saw the gun, I was scared, she says. I said, I don't want to see this. Let me go. Well, Members of the community said the gunmen are asking for a million dollar ransom, but neither the U.S. Department of State nor Elroy Haiti have publicly shared any details of the investigation, citing the sensitive nature of the situation. So it's not clear if a ransom is being arranged or has been paid. I will say we are aware of the reports that two U.S. citizens were kidnapped in Haiti. Obviously, the safety and security of American citizens overseas is our highest priority. That's a quote from the State Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller, at a press briefing on Monday. We are in regular contact with the Haitian authorities and will continue to work with them and our U.S. government interagency partners. But because it's an ongoing law enforcement investigation, there's not any more detail I can offer, end quote. But again, the ministry, Elroy Haiti, is asking that we pray for the safe return of this uh, Christian aid worker, this nurse and her daughter kidnapped just a a couple of days ago. In other news, Pope Francis emphasized the need for courage and resilience in the face of a secularized, increasingly pessimistic world during his Vespers address for World Youth Day. The Pope uh, spoke at a a monastery in Portugal on Wednesday, where he reflected on the biblical story of uh, St. Peter and Andrew, fishermen who were called to ministry by Jesus after finishing a day without catching fish. There are moments in our ecclesiastical work when we can feel a similar weariness. When we seem to be holding on to empty nets, he said, the pontiff, Uh, This is not uncommon in countries of ancient Christian traditions buffeted by social and cultural changes and increasingly marked by secularism, indifference to God and growing detachment from the practice of the faith. Well, in the midst of these cultural upheavals, the pontiff said that the church must not shut itself off to those outside, saying the good, the sinners and everyone should be able to enter into God's church. In the church, we help each other, we support one another, and we feel ourselves called to spread a climate of constructive fraternity beyond our walls. For this matter, St. Peter tells us that we are living stories being built in a spiritual house. While acknowledging the role institutional abuse has played in discouraging the faithful, the Pope also stated that despair and anger must be brought toward God in hopes of spiritual renewal. It's often accentuated by disappointment and anger with which some of the people view the church at times due to our poor witness and the scandals that have marred the faith and have called us to a humble purification, starting with the anguished cry of the victims, who must always be accepted and listened to, the Pope said, uh, uh, speaking to his audience. He continued, whenever we feel discouraged, we can feel tempted to leave the boat and entangled. Uh, in the nets of resignation and pessimism. Indeed, we need to bring those struggles and tears to the Lord. Well, turning to the the theme of the annual celebration, the Pope emphasized the importance of casting your net deep across cultures and nations, regardless of differences. Well, the 37th annual World Youth Day is a Catholic festival being celebrated from the 1st of August through the 6th in Lisbon, Portugal. Well, the annual celebration was instituted by Pope St. John Paul II, In 1985, to bring together young people of various cultures and backgrounds to recognize the international nature of the Catholic Church and worldwide communion of believers. The Pope's journey to Portugal was marked with both concerned reflections on trends in the Western world and messages of encouragement to move forward despite overwhelming despair. Where you are sailing Europe and the West with a discarding of the elder, uh, elderly, walls of barbed wire, massive numbers of deaths at sea and empty cradles, Pope Francis asked in a speech before the Portuguese civil authorities in Lisbon, he drew particular attention to the rising issue of state-sanctioned euthanasia, asking, where are you sailing if, before your life's ills, you offer hasty but mistaken remedies like easy access to death, a convenient answer that seems sweet but is, in fact, more bitter than the waters of the sea? Well, this was the Pope's first apostolic journey since a spat of medical issues, um, most recently, a, a, a surgery in uh, in June that left him uh, incapacitated for several days. The Pope's uh, uh, laments secularism, indifference to God, and urges a recommitment to Jesus at the World Youth Day Vespers. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend, our producer, Dave King, the engineer, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show
1: podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ